Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. Nestled in the heart of Summers, New York, the Turner House stands as a remarkable testament to the grandeur of the 19th century. This pristine, white-framed home was crafted by a wealthy gentry farmer, and its presence exudes a sense of affluence and historical significance. Spanning an impressive 4,731 square feet, the Turner House rests on a sprawling 2.05-acre estate. The front of the home is framed by majestic and age-old trees, providing shade and ensuring an air of privacy. However, the Turner House is not without a dark past. In 1980, this once tranquil abode became the haunting scene of a gruesome murder, a murder that sent shockwaves throughout the peaceful bedroom community. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 82 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Prudy hailed from Bronxville, a picturesque village nestled in Westchester County, New York. She pursued her studies at the esteemed College of Rochelle before settling down with a man named Norman. Norman had come from Webster Grove, Missouri, and had grown up in Scarsdale. He served as a commander from the Navy and saw action in World War II. After leaving the service, Norman worked as an advertising executive specializing in radio and television sales. During the late 1930s, Eleanor worked as a fashion writer until she decided to take a break to devote herself to raising a family with Norman. The couple were blessed with five children, Patricia, Norman Jr., John, James, and David. In the 1950s, they settled in the quaint town of Summers, located in the northern part of Westchester County, New York. They were drawn to this region by its rural beauty, and each season held a special charm for them. Their son, Norman Jr., recalled, Eleanor loved tulips and tennis in the spring, the beach in Nantucket in the summer, leaf raking and bulb planting in the fall, and wreath making and skiing in the winter. Once their children had flown the nest, Eleanor embraced a new career as an excerpts maker at Reader's Digest, a renowned general interest family magazine. With determination and hard work, she rose to become one of the esteemed senior editors of the publication. In her role, Eleanor collaborated with writers to develop original article ideas and skillfully condensed books. She took immense pride in her work and was renowned as a fine person and fine editor by her co-workers. Assistant Managing Editor Peter Canning described her as talented, vivacious, charming, youthful, very outgoing, and incredibly helpful. Norman's life took an unexpected turn in 1965 when he received a diagnosis that would change everything. He was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis a chronic and often disabling neurological disease that affects the central nervous system. Despite the hardships brought on by Norman's condition, 
Eleanor stood by his side with unwavering dedication. In 1977, at the age of 65, she retired from her own career to become her husband's full-time caregiver. However, Eleanor's passion and drive remained undiminished, and she continued to work as a consultant for Reader's Digest. Eleanor and Norman settled into retirement at their grand home on Primrose Street in Summers. Nestled in a semi-rural landscape, their three-story home was less than a mile from Summers High School. The white-framed house adorned with black shutters boasted a cupola atop, exuding timeless charm. Behind the house, a quaint red barn added to the rural appeal, while a swimming pool was located at the side. The home was fronted by large maple and evergreen trees and shrubbery, offering the Prudies privacy from the road. The residents formed a cluster of four homes featuring an additional converted barn. This contemporary barn-turned house belonged to Norman Jr., the eldest son, along with his wife, Alden, and their three children. The entire neighborhood boasted well-manicured lawns and expansive gardens. The Prudy's home stood out as it held historical significance. Outside the home was a plaque placed by the Summers Historical Society, designating it as the Turner House, built around 1860. However, this historic dwelling had its share of tragic events. In 1941, George Turner, the former owner, faced a scandalous downfall, being run out of summer's highest public office, that of town supervisor, for misappropriating town funds. The home had previously been owned by George's father, Augustus, a successful dairy farmer. The Prudies had many fond memories at the home. It was where they had raised all of their children. Their life on Primrose Street wasn't without its own tragedies, however, and was the scene where their youngest son, David, had taken his life. Despite its somber history, Eleanor and Norman adored the home and maintained it impeccably, reflecting their deep affection for it. Preserving its historical significance, the couple even arranged a tour in 1979 to raise funds for the Historical Society. Throughout the house, they retained several original features, including a kitchen bell panel used to summon servants. On the first floor, a proud display of Augustus Turner's portrait added to the house's rich heritage. Beyond the family home, Eleanor and Norman held esteemed positions in their community. Described as very gracious, lovely, and charming, Eleanor's kindness left a lasting impression on those who met her. She actively participated in various community activities, serving on the summer school board and the PTA. Moreover, she lent her time and efforts to the Board of Cooperative Educational Services in Yorktown, while also being a fundraiser for organizations like the Northern Westchester Hospital Center, the American Red Cross, the American Cancer Society, and the Hammond Museum in Pound Ridge. She took great pride in her garden and belonged to the Rusticus Garden Club in Bedford, as well as the Cosmopolitan Club in New York City and the Wacabuck Country Club in Lewisboro. It was a sunny morning in Summers on May 25, 1980. Eleanor and Norman's 10-year-old granddaughter, Honor, pedaled eagerly over to their home, she and Eleanor planned on attending church at 9 a.m., and if they hurried, they wouldn't be late. As Honor opened the front door and crossed the threshold into the vestibule, a peculiar sight immediately captured her attention. There, lying crumpled on the floor, still clad in her nightgown, was her grandmother, Eleanor. Honor turned on her heels and sprinted back home to alert her father, Norman Jr., Within moments, Norman Jr. arrived at his parents' home and rushed to his mother's side. A dreadful chill overcame him as he crouched down alongside his mother and touched her, only to find that her body was cold. Traces of strangulation marred her neck, and there was blood smeared over her face from where she had been struck with some kind of heavy object. Eleanor was evidently deceased. Desperate and distressed, Norman Jr. called out to his father, but silence met his plea. Climbing the stairs with urgency, he entered his parents' bedroom. 
There, he found his father lying unconscious in bed, bearing several cuts and abrasions to his head, yet still breathing. Norman Jr. promptly called the state police barracks in Summers. Norman was rushed to Northern Westchester Hospital where he was reported to be in fair condition. While the injuries he had sustained would not typically be serious, they were complicated by his multiple sclerosis. Detectives had wanted to interview him, but while he had regained consciousness, he was in a state of shock and unable to talk. Over at the medical examiner's office, Detective Gary Paparo found that Eleanor had been strangled to death. She had also sustained blunt injuries to the head, indicating that she had been viciously beaten as well. Back at the home, the investigation into the brutal attack continued. Detectives found that the rear door was unlocked, and on the first floor of the home, they found some signs of a struggle. Furniture and papers were in a state of disarray, and Captain Francis D. Francesco publicly announced that Eleanor may have been killed in a burglary that went wrong. Detectives believed that the killer, or killers, had entered the couple's home at some point between 3 a.m. and 8.30 a.m. that morning. Despite the chaos, detectives were uncertain about the exact items that had been stolen during the break-in. Addressing the situation, the captain commented to the Associated Press, We are pursuing it either as a burglary that was interrupted by Mrs. Prudy or a robbery. As the investigation of the crime scene persisted, the focus shifted toward finding a suspect. Detectives began scrutinizing the couple's friends and former colleagues and interviewed anyone who had worked at their home, including gardeners, domestic workers, nurses, and maintenance personnel. The aim was to determine if anyone harbored ill feelings toward the couple. However, by all accounts, they were a well-liked and well-respected couple, both in their respective careers and within the community. Detectives continued looking into the possibility that the murder was a burglary gone wrong. They meticulously combed through the local police logs for that specific weekend, but found no records of any other burglaries occurring at that time. Additionally, there were no previous reports of attempted break-ins at the Prudy residence. If this was indeed a burglary gone wrong, it appeared that the Prudies might have been random targets. According to neighbors in the area, the community had long felt safe living there. However, this sense of security might have led many residents, including the Prudies, to leave their doors unlocked at night, inadvertently inviting trouble. While the town of Summers enjoyed a sense of safety, they relied solely on the state police barracks on Route 100 for protection. Though a part-time police force patrolled the town during the weekends, their budget did not allow for a dispatcher, and there were sometimes no police patrols during the night. This meant that residents in the area had their calls relayed to police through an answering service. If it were an emergency, it would be relayed directly to the state police. It was the same for the towns of Pound Ridge, North Salem, and Lewisboro. Commenting on the situation, Mary Egan, a resident, expressed her concerns to the reporter dispatch, saying that if she were going to do a robbery, I would look for a town with little police protection. Mary added, The New York State Police are marvelous in this area, but people have been too complacent. This town has been growing. 25 years ago, we should have started building up a town police force. While there had been a few burglaries over the years, none were reported during that particular weekend. One local, Al Tomka, recollected, We sought peace and quiet up here. It was very peaceful, even tranquil at first, with no air pollution and no crime. Then the burglaries began, and now things like this. Sergeant V.L. Fort of the State Police Station in Summers touched on the community's worries and said he didn't want people to feel as though there are no police officers about. He explained that they were always able to respond to emergencies, but there were occasional times when there were no patrols between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. Captain J. Patterson of the State Police Regional Headquarters of Poughkeepsie 
also commented on the situation. He stated, Ideally, we'd like to have two patrols on the road there at all times, but it just isn't possible with the budgetary constraints. There was a sense of fear within the local community, linking the recent murder of Eleanor and the attack on Norman to earlier burglary murders that had occurred around six miles away in Bedford Hills. On May 10, 1979, the bodies of 62-year-old Charles Frankel and his wife Helen were discovered dead in their rambling Bedford Hills ranch. They had both been shot in the head and their home had been ransacked. Strikingly, just a short distance away, about 1,200 feet, another grim discovery was made earlier that day. The bodies of 20-year-old Christopher Sperry and his former governess, 82-year-old Nettie McCormick, were found shot dead in Christopher's parents' house on Suckabone Road. However, this spate of murders had a resolution. On May 8, 1980, 40-year-olds Junius Gray and Jimmy Lee Allen of Plainfield, New Jersey, were convicted of the quadruple murders. But still, some feared that another killer had taken inspiration from these grisly murders and wanted to emulate them over in summers. As talk of a copycat circulated throughout the area, there were calls for more police protection in Summers and the surrounding communities. Mary Egan was at the forefront of this endeavor and declared in Daily News, We need a full-time police department. We're too complacent because we're backed by state police. As the investigation into Eleanor's murder was ramped up, more than 300 mourners gathered at St. Mary's Church in Katona on May 28th to pay their final respects to her. Outside the steepled Roman Catholic Church, a faint dirge resonated from the organ, accompanying the mourners as they solemnly made their way inside. Eleanor's children, grandchildren, and brothers formed the final procession into the church, with some carrying the coffin, while others followed closely behind. Leading the service was Reverend William Martin, a former assistant pastor at the church. He addressed the mourners, acknowledging the heavy burden of sorrow that had befallen Eleanor's loved ones, particularly her husband, Norman. He urged them, saying, In all your prayers, remember Norman this day and pray for him and his great burden. During the service, the family recited passages from the Old and New Testaments, at the conclusion, Norman Jr. delivered a heartfelt eulogy. Through tears, he said, she loved life and she loved people. Ellie cared deeply and was devoted to my father. He described how his mother had undertaken the care of his father with loyalty and an upbeat spirit. The day after the service, Detective Gerald Zapallo made an announcement indicating that they were exploring motives beyond robbery in Eleanor's murder. Although the investigation revealed signs of the home being ransacked, nothing appeared to have been stolen. The revelation added another layer of complexity to the case, and detectives had very little to go on. One prevailing theory was that Eleanor might have been acquainted with her killer. Still, despite their efforts, Detectives couldn't identify anyone who held ill will towards her. They diligently interviewed every person who had known the Prudies, hoping to unearth a clearer motive or identify a potential person of interest. Detective Robert Lowell commented, Several hundred friends, former employees, business people, garbage men, mailmen, you name it. While the search for an alternative motive continued, the detectives still considered the possibility that the perpetrator or perpetrators might have been seeking something specific within the house. However, they were yet to determine what that item might have been. After a few days in the hospital, Norman was able to communicate with the detectives, but he had no insights into the attack that tragically claimed his wife's life. Later, on June 3rd, he was discharged from the hospital, but with no caretaker at home, he moved to Summers Manor, a nursing home situated just a few miles away. In the wake of Eleanor's murder, her friends united to discuss the idea of creating a reward fund to encourage individuals with information to come forward. Together, they managed to raise a reward of $25,000, hoping it would serve as a compelling incentive for anyone holding crucial information about the case. 
The reward did what it intended, and in a couple of days, six leads had come in. However, each of these leads led nowhere, leaving detectives back at square one. As detectives worked around the clock on the homicide investigation, Norman Jr. and a group of neighbors decided they wanted to do something to honor his mother. On June 14th, they announced they had established a scholarship fund in her name for the summer's high school graduates entering college. The student that was chosen would receive $250, but it was hoped that an endowment of $10,000 could be raised so that similar gifts could be granted to other students in the future. The first student to be awarded the scholarship was Deborah Joyce Gasthalter. Just over a mile and a half from the Prudy home stood Lincoln Hall, a center catering to juvenile delinquent boys since its establishment in 1863. The institution's treatment program revolved around an open environment, striving to provide a therapeutic environment for boys deemed in need of supervision, or delinquent, by New York's family courts. Typically, boys were referred to Lincoln Hall after their cases were handled in family court, either through probation departments, social service branches, or divisions for youth. Operating on an annual budget of $5.7 million, funded by the state and federal governments, Lincoln Hall facilitated an educational program with the boys attending school until 3 p.m. each day. Afterward, they returned to their dormitories or cottages, engaging in activities like horseback riding on the campus trails, participating in an intramural athletic program, and accessing mental health clinic services. For 15 years, Eleanor had been a benevolent presence at Lincoln Hall, arranging field trips and assigning odd jobs to the boys at her home. Though not formally associated with the institution, she made modest donations over the years. During routine interviews with individuals acquainted with the Prudies, detectives visited Lincoln Hall. Many spoke highly of Eleanor but some boys mentioned two others who had been discussing a potential robbery. One of them was 16-year-old David Hollis, referred to Lincoln Hall by the family court in his home county of Erie due to issues such as truancy, running away, and petty theft. His mother turned him over to the state after admitting he was beyond her control. The other was 17-year-old Terry Lasico who had been sent to Lincoln Hall by a family court judge in January 1979 after a spate of burglaries in Stony Point. Though they hadn't met Eleanor or Norman, they heard talk among the boys about the Grand Mansion on Primrose Street and rumors about the Prudy's wealth. Some even speculated that large amounts of cash were kept within their home. At Lincoln Hall, another teenage boy named Willie Pace revealed a chilling conversation to detectives. According to Willie, Terry Lasico had approached him and Edwin Jamie, another resident of Lincoln Hall, with a proposal to rob a house in May. During their conversation, Lasico ominously warned them, if they come downstairs and see us and can identify us, we might have to kill them. Initially intrigued by the plan, Willie had second thoughts, expressing that he didn't want to kill nobody. As fate would have it, on the night of May 24th, Lasico roused Willie from sleep, urging him to partake in the robbery. However, Willie refused and chose to roll over and go back to sleep. Several weeks after this conversation, Lasico confided in Gary Bonite, another boy at Lincoln Hall, that he and David Hollis had committed a murder. Lasico told Gary, Gary, don't be mad, but do you remember the lady you used to work for? I didn't mean to kill her. Gary had spent some time at the Prudy home doing odd jobs, but he had told the other boys about how wealthy the couple appeared to be. David Hollis, too, admitted to Willie Pace that he and Lasico were responsible for a murder and robbery in Summers. Frank Carollo, yet another resident at Lincoln Hall, also became privy to their confessions. Armed with this damning evidence, detectives took swift action, arresting David Hollis at Lincoln Hall on July 7th. On the same day, they apprehended Terry Lasico in the Bronx, where he had been residing in a halfway house after his discharge from Lincoln Hall. 
Terry Lusico's roots trace back to Stony Point, Rockland County. In 1974, his adoptive father, Anthony, explored a booklet for adoptive parents in search of a new addition to his family. Already having adopted two teenage brothers, Richard and Robert, three years earlier, Anthony desired to welcome another son into his life, even as a single father. After an unsuccessful marriage following the adoption of Richard and Robert, Anthony felt ready to expand his family once more. As he perused the adoption booklet, he noticed a blonde-haired boy who caught his attention. Sadly, when Anthony inquired about the little boy, he had already been adopted. Nonetheless, a friend who was involved with adoption agencies informed Anthony of another young boy named Terry. At 11 years old, Terry had experienced a tumultuous life, moving from foster home to foster home until becoming a ward of the state. Born to a single mother in 1963, Terry was one of 13 children, with his mother giving birth to her first child at just 12 years old. One by one, all of her children were taken away from her by social workers and placed in foster care. Anthony promptly adopted Terry within six months of learning about him, granting him a new home, two brothers, a new identity, and a chance at a fresh start in life. During the initial years in his new home, Terry Lasico seemed to adapt well. However, as he attended James A. Farley Middle School, he struggled with academics, grappling with concentration issues. After two years, Lasico's behavior took a turn, frequently landing him in trouble with the law. His lifetime of rejection had molded him into a hardened individual, adopting a tough exterior. By the age of 15, Lasico engaged in truancy, drug dealing, and home burglaries. Eventually, at 16, he was caught burglarizing homes and was sent to Lincoln Hall. Despite being away from home, he was permitted occasional visits to see his father and brothers. During one such visit, he was confirmed as a Roman Catholic. However, on April 15, 1980, Lasico ran away from Lincoln Hall but was apprehended by Stony Point police while walking along Route 9W. He was promptly returned to Lincoln Hall, where his path intertwined with that of David Hollis. David Hollis was born into a broken home in Lackawanna, New York, where his mother would wake him each morning before leaving for work. Despite the expectation to attend school, Hollis had a penchant for playing hooky and engaging in troublesome activities. Even on the days when he did make it to Hoover Junior High School, he found himself enrolled in the Alternate to Suspension program, tailored for disruptive students in need of constant discipline. Within this program, daily counseling sessions were offered. While Hollis's tutor noted that he mainly displayed good manners, attendance remained a persistent problem. The tutor lamented, Let me put it this way, in a period of 48 days I was supposed to have him as a student? He showed up 11 times. Hollis's behavior continued to spiral as he skipped school, stayed out late, and indulged in excessive drinking. His mother struggled to control him, and a report by an Erie County Family Court Clinic psychologist depicted Hollis as extremely lonely, shy, and retiring, isolated, and without a system of emotional support. Recognizing his need for a more supportive environment, it was decided that Hollis should be placed in one, and thus he was sent to Lincoln Hall. Within Lincoln Hall, Terry Lasico discovered a follower in David Hollis, someone who admired him and hung on his every word. If Lasico instructed Hollis to jump, he would dutifully inquire, how high? Therefore, when the idea of committing a burglary arose, Hollis was eager to please and readily embraced the plan. On July 8th, Terry Lasico and David Hollis were charged with the second-degree murder of Eleanor. They were also charged with first-degree robbery. They had stolen no items from the Prudy home, but instead around $25 that was found on a coffee table. They were ordered held without bail as the community grappled with the reality that two boys, staying so nearby, were accused of such a heinous crime. 
The revelation that his adopted son was involved in the murder hit Anthony hard. He spoke to the Daily Times and said that while his son had his own problems, he had never displayed any violence. He solemnly commented, I've shed enough tears for Terry over the years. The tears I shed now are for the Prudy family. According to Anthony, he had sometimes regretted adopting Lasico, but he said it was clear that his son needed a home and support, and he didn't want to give up on him. He commented, Most of the kids who come from broken homes have been traumatized or psychologically damaged. Some you can salvage, some you can't. Anthony also commented that he didn't doubt that his son was involved in Eleanor's murder. He stated, Whether he actually strangled the woman or beat the woman, it's hard for me to comprehend. But whether it was he or the other boy, they were both in it together. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Terry Lasico and David Hollis were summoned to appear in court for a felony hearing where the evidence would be assessed to establish probable cause for their alleged involvement in the crime. Before the hearing, Lasico's defense attorney, Martin King, requested that the proceedings be closed, citing the defendant's ages. However, Judge Arthur Covey denied the request, asserting that the teenagers were not entitled to a closed hearing. The felony hearing was slated for July 15th. During the hearing, Lasico and Hollis sat side by side, often whispering to each other as details of the case were presented. Assistant District Attorney Robert Mancuso disclosed that both teenagers had confessed fully to the murder after their arrest. According to Lasico's statement, they were motivated to break into the Prudy home due to rumors of large amounts of cash kept by Eleanor and Norman. The original plan was for Willie Pace to accompany Lasico to the Prudy home, but when Lasico awoke him, he made it clear he wanted nothing to do with it. Lasico then awoke Hollis, who decided he would come along to take part in the robbery as well. It was around 1.30 a.m. and the night watchman was asleep. The two teenagers left dummies in their beds at the Lincoln Hall dormitory, quietly snuck out of a window, and walked around one and a half miles to the Prudy residence. Outside the home, Lasico grabbed a piece of firewood and they gained entry through a downstairs window. Once inside, they began searching several rooms for money while Eleanor and Norman slept upstairs, unaware of the intrusion. Lasico and Hollis decided to go upstairs, where they found the couple asleep in their bedroom. Lasico recalled, The man made a noise and I thought he was awake, so I hit him. Hollis corroborated this, telling another detective, Lasico hit the guy on the head, a pretty good blow with a stick. Eleanor woke up in the commotion and, upon switching on the light, she saw her husband bleeding and two unknown teenage boys standing before her, one brandishing a piece of firewood. Lasico shouted at Eleanor, I don't want to hurt you, I just want the money. 
Eleanor told the boys to come downstairs, assuring them she would give them more money. As she switched on more lights upon reaching the bottom of the stairs, Lasico recounted, she started yelling and making noise. She wasn't saying anything. She wasn't making no sense, really. He said he grabbed Eleanor and dragged her into the hallway, throwing her on the floor. He then struck her over the back of the head with a piece of firewood. As she attempted to defend herself from the blows, Lasico kicked her in the mouth. He described what happened next. During the struggle, I ripped the back of her slip. When I kicked her, I kicked her a couple of times. He then revealed for the first time something that hadn't been discovered during Eleanor's autopsy. He had sodomized her as she lay dying on the floor of her own home. Meanwhile, Hollis had gone upstairs to check on Norman, following Lasico's instructions. Hearing thumping sounds from downstairs, Hollis rushed down to witness Lasico's violent attack on Eleanor. Hollis suggested to Lasico that there might be an alarm in the house, prompting them to flee, but not before stealing $25 from the nearby coffee table. Neither Lasico nor Hollis admitted to the strangulation. From the Prudy home, Lasico and Hollis walked back to Lincoln Hall, where they removed the dummies from their beds and went to sleep. Following the felony hearing, Judge Covey sent the case to the grand jury, while Lasico and Hollis were returned to the Westchester County Jail. The next month, the grand jury indicted Terry Lasico and David Hollis on 17 counts, including murder, burglary, and sodomy. Under New York state law, prosecutors were able to try them as adults, and District Attorney Carl Vergari announced that they were intending to do so. On August 14th, Lasico and Hollis pleaded not guilty to all 17 counts. As the case was meandering its way through the justice system, there was a debate ongoing about security at Lincoln Hall. Town Supervisor Robert Loomis called a conference on August 15th to assuage the fears of residents. A spokesman for Lincoln Hall said that since the murder of Eleanor, security had been tightened. According to detectives, however, the number of absconders over the summer had remained as high as it had been in previous years. Detective Lowell stated, it's a security problem. It will always be a security problem. Later that month, the Christian brothers announced they were resigning from running Lincoln Hall. They had run it for 117 years, but their resignation wasn't in relation to the murder of Eleanor. They said they were resigning due to an impasse in negotiations for a new contract with the school's nonsectarian board of managers. The Christian brothers had administered the school while the board established the policies. Brother John Martin announced, We preferred more representation on the board of managers, and we wanted full control of the internal management. In March, Terry Lasico's defense attorney announced that his client was undergoing psychiatric tests, which meant that a trial date could not yet be scheduled. By the following month, the preliminary hearing was ready to begin, but the proceedings were closed to the public. Lasico subsequently waived his right to a jury trial, instead opting for a bench trial. This meant that a judge would hear the case against him and then determine his guilt or innocence. Hollis, however, opted for a jury trial, meaning they would be standing trial separately. Lasico stood trial first, and it began April 28, 1981. It was presided over by Judge Angelo Ingrassi, who would serve as both the judge and the jury. During opening statements, Assistant District Attorney Frank Carollo described the events leading up to Eleanor's murder. He described how Lasico struck Norman while he was asleep in bed, before following Eleanor back down the stairs. He detailed how he kicked Eleanor and struck her in the head with a piece of firewood before sodomizing her. He stated, He turned her over and saw blood, and with Mrs. Prudy lying bloody on the floor, the defendant and his accomplice sneaked back to Lincoln Hall. Assistant District Attorney Carollo allowed a moment for the grim details to sink in before continuing. 
He explained that after the murder, Lasico and Hollis bragged about what they had done to the other boys at Lincoln Hall. Defense attorney Michael Skolnick said during his brief opening statements that there will not be sufficient evidence in the people's case to show an intentional homicide. The testimony promptly got underway, with the prosecution calling on 16-year-old Brooks Prudy, Eleanor and Norman's grandson. He told the courtroom how he had last seen her alive about 1.30 a.m. on May 25th, when he left her home after staying with his grandfather so she could go to a dinner dance. Norman also testified. He sat in his wheelchair and needed to pause several times as he described the night of his wife's murder. Through sobs, he explained that he had awoken to hear two male voices, one of which said to look in the bottom drawer. This was the last thing he remembered before waking up at about 8 a.m. with blood pooling down his face. His testimony was followed by Detective Pasquale Valentino, to whom Lasico had confessed the murder. He described how Lasico appeared nervous when he was arrested, before saying that he attacked Eleanor after she tried to hit him with a glass jar. Lasico then went into greater detail, telling Detective Valentino of the events leading up to the murder. Several boys from Lincoln Hall testified for the prosecution as well, detailing Lasico's plans to rob a home and kill the occupant if they saw him. Gary Bonite, who had once worked at Eleanor and Norman's home, told the courtroom how Lasico had confessed the murder to him toward the end of June. Willie Pace told the courtroom that he had told his social worker about Lasico's plot to rob a house and kill whoever was inside if he got caught. After just two days of testimony, the trial was complete. The judge deliberated for just 15 minutes before announcing that he found Terry Lasico guilty of 14 counts of murder, burglary, robbery, assault, and larceny. He found him not guilty of sodomy, but stated, even though the court is certain beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed this act. As Lasico was escorted out of the courtroom, he snarled obscenities at reporters who had gathered. Lasico was facing a sentence of 25 years to life in prison. However, before that sentence could be imposed, his co-defendant, David Hollis, was to stand trial. By May 8th, the jury was selected, and the murder trial for David Hollis was ready to commence. During opening statements, prosecutor Frank Carrillo described Hollis's role in the murder as that of a willing, enthusiastic, and central participant. Defense attorney Peter Incero refuted this and said that his client was just a follower and a stupid kid of 16 years old. According to prosecutor Carollo, they were not going to argue that Hollis held the weapon that killed Eleanor or that he had strangled her. Instead, Carollo stated that his intent was to commit this crime and every other one of those crimes was also his intent. He explained that Hollis saw Lasico arm himself with a piece of firewood and knew that people were in the house. The prosecution called on Detective Stanley Romain, who testified about Hollis's confession. Detective Romain told the court that Hollis had admitted to robbing Eleanor, but said he hadn't participated in the actual murder. Romain explained that Hollis appeared to be quiet and respectful, but said he appeared as though he had a lot on his mind. During Hollis's confession, he explained that after they came across Eleanor and Norman asleep, he suggested to Lasico that they should leave. Lasico responded that he'd take care of it and then struck Norman with the piece of firewood. According to Hollis, he took $10 from Eleanor's purse, but when they escorted Eleanor downstairs, Lasico said he was going to tie her up with his belt. After this, Hollis was instructed to go upstairs, and when he came back down, he found Lasico beating Eleanor with the firewood. Once more, Norman testified, telling the jury that he heard two male voices in his house late at night before he was struck on the head. Norman Jr. was also called as a prosecution witness and described to the jury the moment he found his mother dead and his father injured in bed. The jury also heard from other boys at Lincoln Hall who once more testified about Lasico's plans to rob a house. 
Dana Fanning told the jury that Hollis had told him the day after the murder that he couldn't believe it when he saw Lasico go crazy and beat Eleanor. Once testimony was complete, Judge Ingracia dismissed premeditated murder and sodomy charges against Hollis. He was still facing two counts of second-degree murder. It was also alleged he was responsible for her death during the course of a felony in which he participated. In order to win an acquittal against the felony murder charge, Hollis's defense team needed to prove that he didn't know that Lasico was armed with a deadly weapon, and he didn't know he intended to kill anybody. During closing arguments, Prosecutor Carollo argued that Hollis had played an instrumental and very important role in the murder. He said that he knew without question that Lasico was armed because he saw him pick up the piece of firewood outside. The jury ultimately found David Hollis guilty of murder, robbery, burglary, and assault. Much like his co-defendant, he too was facing a sentence of 25 years to life. Terry Lasico and David Hollis returned to court on June 19th to learn their fate. Before their sentences were imposed, they were given the opportunity to speak. Through tears, Hollis told the judge, I just wish that none of this would have ever have happened. If I'd known someone was going to end up getting killed, I never would have went. Lasico was then asked if he wanted to speak, and he responded, I don't feel right. I feel sick inside. I don't feel right talking. The judge then sentenced Lasico to 27 and a half years to life in prison and Hollis to 20 years to life. In handing down the sentence, he said, During my entire experience, I don't believe I can remember a more brutal or vicious crime than this one. Lasico and Hollis were then escorted out of the courtroom and taken to begin their sentences. In December of that year, a $6 million negligence lawsuit was filed against Erie County, Rockland County, and Lincoln Hall by Norman Jr. The lawsuit alleged improper placement of violent youths in a minimum security facility, Lincoln Hall. Norman Jr. accused local officials of being aware of David Hollis's violent character. He contended that he should have been placed in a more secure facility. The lawsuit sought $3.5 million for the severe conscious pain and suffering endured by Eleanor, $1.5 million for her wrongful death, and $1 million for the injuries sustained by Norman Sr. In November of the following year, Anthony Lasico tragically passed away in a mid-air plane collision over Livingston, New Jersey. The lawsuit went to trial on January 26, 1984, with attorney Raymond Keegan arguing that Lincoln Hall had a totally ineffective night security system, enabling residents to leave the premises easily. He highlighted that night guards were paid minimum wage and often neglected their duties. Attorney Keegan contended that the security system was so flawed that the killers could leave and return without detection. Terry Lasico and David Hollis testified during the trial revealing that security was lax enough for boys to escape for extended periods. Lasico confessed to having escaped and lived on the streets or with friends during these periods. Part of the trial focused on determining whether Eleanor had suffered during the attack. Dr. Lewis Rowe, the deputy medical examiner, testified that it would have taken Eleanor 10 to 15 minutes to die after the attack. He expressed his opinion that she remained conscious throughout the entire ordeal. Following the trial, lawyers reached an out-of-court settlement in the lawsuit, and the terms of the settlement were sealed by Judge Lucille Buell. According to Lincoln Hall attorney Russell Clune, the settlement did not constitute an admission of liability by the institution. In November 1984, Lasico's adoptive brother Richard tragically shot his grandfather, Pasquale Lasico, to death and critically wounded his grandmother, Anna Lasico. In response, police shot Richard dead as he raised his rifle in their direction. Detectives revealed that Richard had been upset with his grandparents' decision to sell the family home after Anthony's tragic death. Anthony had been devoted to his three adoptive children, and fate dealt him a cruel hand 
as two of them turned into killers. On March 27, 1986, Norman Sr. passed away at the age of 72 at the Summers Manor Nursing Home. In 2010, David Hollis was released on parole after six attempts. He moved to the Buffalo area, and during his parole hearing, he maintained he did not assault or kill Eleanor. Terry Lasico attempted to gain parole for the first time in 2005. He was denied parole and tried three more times, in 2007, in 2009, and in 2011. Each time he was denied, and as his fifth parole hearing rolled around in 2013, the Pruti family became vocal about their opposition. The Prudy's grandson, Brooks, stated, I have no idea what sort of person Terry Lasico has become, nor do I particularly care. I certainly believe that a person's character can change and improve. However, even if he were a model prisoner, I would adamantly oppose his parole nonetheless. In an effort to oppose the parole, Brooks set up an online petition which received signatures from all across the nation. The brutal murder still reverberated in Summers, where the family had a lot of support. In March 2013, Lasico was denied parole once more. In 2016, Lasico's sixth parole hearing was held, and this time he was granted parole. During the hearing, Lasico had claimed that at the time of the murder, he was high on PCP. The parole board had found that he engaged in significant rehabilitation efforts. It also found that Lasico could live a law-abiding life. He received several conditions of parole, including efforts to seek employment and or vocational training, submitting to substance abuse testing, and refraining from alcohol and not communicating with David Hollis. He was released from prison on March 10, 2016, and went to live in Rockland County. Lasico told the parole board that he planned on exploring a career in sanitation. However, just two months after his release, he was rearrested and facing charges of violating parole, curfew, and relationship conditions. In December of that year, Terry Lasico was released on parole once again. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We appreciate you listening, and please be safe. <laughs>